Nothing draws us in like a good story. For millennia, humanity has come together to hear them told. Stories help us remember our past, understand our present, and anticipate our future. During this season, we remember the story of God unfolded throughout history in stories of both good and evil, wisdom and foolishness, triumph and defeat. Stories that whisper the name of a conquering king, a final victor, the faithful and true author himself. So, gather around, settle in, Let's listen once more to the stories that fill us with hope, joy, peace, and love. This is the story that changes everything. Merry, Merry Christmas to all of you guys. Here we are. Uh, December begins and we walk into uh, this incredible opportunity that we get as a people who follow Jesus year in and year out as we in our annual rhythm arrive in this month and begin to divert our focus, fix our eyes, set our hearts and minds on the extraordinary realities of God coming to be with us so that he might rescue us and redeem us and give us a hope and a future instead of darkness and death. That is what we get to gather up uh, here in December and celebrate. We celebrate the arrival of our king in our human past so that we can remember his glorious faithfulness. And that is, that is the, the, the beauty of God's story. God bothered to write down the realities of our past and our present and our future as a human race in the form of stories and a story, God's story. And every time we go and we revisit and visit for the first time, perhaps parts of God's story, the same thing occurs over and over again, that as we visit it, what God will show us again and again and again is that despite any part we play or don't play in the story, he has been, he is, and he will be forever faithful and true. That is what we get to do in this Christmas season. And as we enter this great uh, celebration and reminder of the story of God, uh, of his advent, his arrival, his coming, the story that surrounds the Christmas season, for most of us, all of us perhaps, uh, we would think rightly so that the story really revolves around uh, events that took place uh, at a certain point in history when a young woman uh, was kind of doing her thing and an angel showed up to her and said, Mary, 
you are going to have a child and God is going to conceive this child in you uh, without the involvement of a man and it is going to be a miraculous conception and this child is going to be the long-awaited Messiah, the one, the arriving of our King and our Savior who will do all that God has promised throughout human history. We would think that that is where the story begins of Christmas and that that miraculous conception uh, is one of the great beginning miracles of the story of Christmas. But if we are truly to understand the faithfulness of God in the arrival and the faithfulness of God in the one yet to come in his coming again, we have to go far, far further back than the story of Mary and the miraculous conception of Jesus in her womb. In fact, what we will realize as we go back is that the conception of Jesus in Mary's womb, miraculous in every way, was far from the first miracle of Christmas. Far from the only miracle of Christmas that God had been doing things throughout our human story with such miraculous wonder, such precision, such protection, such preservation, so intricately and precise that when we look back at our human history and the eventual arrival of Jesus, we can only say when we look at it rightly, how could someone be that faithful and that true in the complexities of our human story? And we will say there is one, God himself, who is faithful and true. But to fully understand our past and the intricacy and precision and beauty of God's faithfulness in our human past, we must actually begin in what is our human future, but not God's future. We must begin in a place that has no past or future, that is only present because it exists outside of the constructs of time. So it doesn't have a beginning, and it doesn't have a passing, and it doesn't have an end. It just has a present. And so what is present there is present and has been present. And that story is one that exists not in our dimension, but in the dimension of eternity, in a place we call heaven. And there is actually a book in the Bible that reveals to us through a miraculous event the events and realities that have or will take place in heaven in our understanding, but that are just present there. John was miraculously taken up by God to walk into the uh, dimension of eternity and see the events we are experiencing in start, passing, and finishing, seeing them in their totality as they are present always. In the book of Revelation, we are in a space where time does not exist and we are, we are just seeing what is and seeing what is real. At the end of the book of Revelation, there is a vision that John has that is extraordinary that ultimately starts us, even though for our story it's at its end, starts us with the clarity that the God we serve is by nature faithful and true. In the book of Revelation, in chapter 19, this is what occurs. Revelation 19, it says this, verse 11. Then, John says, I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful 
and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. So John sees this vision at the end of his time as he is viewing the events of time and space as the conquering king sits on a white horse and he is worthy of bringing righteous judgment and going to war against sin and death. Now, when we first encounter a king like this on a white horse, victorious, and you read the rest of the description and it's things of fire in his eyes and swords coming out of his mouth. Like, it, it is the kind of vision you're like, run for your life. But right before John describes Jesus in the form of his victory and his conquering and his worthiness to conquer sin and death, he says his robe that he wears is dipped in blood. Just when we think this conquering king on a white horse is coming to conquer us, we discover that the way he conquers sin and death is by laying his life down for us. What makes him worthy of being our conquering king is that he is first our conquering savior. This reality on the white horse as conquering king that happens in Revelation 19 is a vision that is born out of a vision that John has earlier in his experience in uh, heaven in Revelation. And that is in Revelation chapter 5. Listen to what happens in Revelation chapter 5. And this, this is where we pay attention to some keys here in God's present eternity that shows us how precise our human past and his journey to Messiah had to be. Listen to this. You'll see what I mean in a second. Chapter five of the book of Revelation. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaim in a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? This scroll was the scroll that would ultimately pour judgment out on sin and death. And the question is, who can open the seal and not be judged by it? So who is worthy to open this thing and actually be the judge, bring righteousness about, conquer sin and death? Who can do such a thing? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I, John, began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more, John, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing. Notice here in eternity, as God is identifying the glory of who he is and the glory of his faithfulness and his truth and the glory of his conquering and the glory of the wonder of what makes him Messiah, he is given names. He is the one who can open the scroll, who is worthy, the lion of the tribe of Judah, and he is the root of David. So these are two names we should pay attention to. And we recognize that as the conquering lion of the tribe of Judah and the root of David, what makes him the conquering king that is worthy is that he is the lamb of God. 
So he conquers sin and death to save us. He doesn't conquer us because we are sin and death. What? That is a faithfulness we can't imagine. And we're going to see in the beginning of the story, it is how he was then and how he is at the end, even though his end and his beginning is not, is not an end or a beginning. It is how he has always been because he is simply present always as faithful and true. So for this to be his name, in eternity, the, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, we would have to know that in the sequence of the line of humanity, we would have to have at least two people we know in that line for this reality and revelation to have always been true. So think of this not as a future reality and revelation, but this has been true in eternity. So we must have Judah and we must have David in the line of Jesus in order for these names to be right and true for him to be the lamb worthy, right? Where does the story begin? The story begins in Genesis. Genesis is the book of beginnings. In fact, today, we are only going to be in the book of beginnings because if we delve into the journey of the line of Jesus uh, and we delve into it rightly and we give it due justice, we will be here until next Christmas because there's that much in it that is extraordinary of the display of God's precision and protection and preservation uh, uh, to, to fulfill his promises and his prophecies with extraordinary wonder to prove himself faithful and true and to accomplish all things that have always been his plan so that they are not happening as something he reacts to or responds to, but something that he affects by his will and he is faithful and true. And the story begins in the book of beginnings, the book of Genesis. He creates Adam and Eve into a perfect environment with a perfect relationship with him and with one another with no sin involved and therefore no death as an experience. No pain, no suffering, no anxiety, no shame, no fear. These are not things that they had space in their imagination to fathom because they had no experience of such things. They only knew life. They only knew freedom. They only knew wonder and intimacy with God. That's all they knew. It was not part of what they knew. It's all they knew. And then God said to them, this is the intent of how we will live together. He told them in the garden that their submission to his story is their life and freedom. And God's enemy came along and tried to convince Adam and Eve that God was holding them back, that he had a plan for them that wasn't the best plan for them. It wasn't life and freedom. It was restricting them. And if they would only eat of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, they would know what he knows, then be like him, and they would be their own divinity, not needing God anymore. And Adam and Eve bought into that lie. They ate of the fruit that God had said, do not do this. It leads to this thing called death. And death is not what you want. And they ate of it. And in the eating of the fruit, the virus of sin entered into our human story. And immediately we begin to see the, the reality of death and what it does. Immediately there is fear. Immediately there is shame. Immediately there is hiddenness. Immediately there is vulnerability that feels like we need to protect ourselves. Immediately the erosion of sin begins and death begins to show its fruit. God walks into that story in Genesis chapter 3. And our expectation should be that God would walk into this story and in the disobedience of Adam and Eve and the entry of the virus sin, which brings about unrighteousness, injustice, and death, 
that he would come in as conquering king and he would eliminate and annihilate sin, death, and the human story. Just so you know, that would have made all the sense in the world. That should have been what occurred. But God doesn't do that. Same as in Revelation. Just when you think conquering king is going to kill us, his robe is dipped in blood. He is going to save us. There he is, the lion of the tribe of Judah. No, 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 no. The lamb of God who is here to save us. Always the reverse of our expectations. And then what happens? In Genesis, God says, okay, let's have a conversation. And he starts with the conversation with the enemy that convinced Adam and Eve to walk in this way. And he pours judgment on that enemy and describes what it's going to be like for them. He's just speaking out what this judgment is going to be. And in that speaking out, he says something extraordinary. And he says this before he speaks to Adam and Eve of the consequences of what death will now do because sin has come. In chapter 3 of the book of Genesis in verse 15... He says, as he's speaking judgment on the enemy, on Satan, before the woman and Adam, he says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman. That is between God's enemy, Satan, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, and you shall bruise, and, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is the first beginning of a promise that God makes to us as a human race, that in the story of our humanity, there will be a time in the future where though the enemy of God convincing Adam and Eve to step into sin and therefore inviting death in has caused us great injury, right? We as a human race have been deeply injured by what the enemy accomplished and are progressively and ongoingly injured, are we not? Do you, do you feel injured a lot? Insecure, scared, afraid, uh, all the millions of things that death does? Yes, and God says yes, Death is going to do that, and he has done that to you. But that will not conquer you, only injure you. And yet I, through you, will conquer sin and death. Sin and death will bruise your heel or crush your heel, but you, by my intervention and power and doing, will crush sin and death's head. There's the promise. Now this promise needs to begin to unfold. How is this promise going to unfold? How are we going to get to a place where there would be one who can ultimately reverse and undo what sin and death has done, leading us to revelation where the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, is the lamb of God on the white horse, conquering king over sin and death. How do we get there? And so the journey begins, the impossible journey. From Adam and Eve they have two sons, Cain and Abel. There's an event that takes place and Cain kills Abel. If I go into that right now and the glory of what is being re represented there about this promise, we'd start our journey to be here until next Christmas. So we're gonna be skipping a lot in the genealogy. So sorry, we'll get to it another time. But as Cain and Abel uh, have a giant mess, another son is born, his name is Seth. Seth begins a line. From the line of Seth, over a number of hundred years, Seth uh, has kids and, well, I mean, his wife has kids. And uh, so anytime I say that, Seth births somebody, just, just run with me, okay? Obviously, I mean uh, th that Seth is married and his wife has kids. So Seth has children and his children's children and his children's children. And so it goes along until born in that line is a man named Noah. 
Now, Noah is important because watch God's precision now. At the time that Noah is born, something has happened to humanity over those number of hundred years. The Bible describes in Genesis chapter 6 that every intention and thought of mankind was evil and dark by the time we arrive at Noah. So think about what, what sin that virus has done to humanity and the fruit of death has now caused a humanity that is so bent on destruction that all humanity is thinking about is how can I win and I can make you lose. And the inevitable end of a human race that every thought and intention of mankind is evil is self-destruction, is it not? If that is every thought and every intent of every human, we're in trouble. Watch this now. God, we would expect at that point would go, well, I tried to give Adam and Eve a shot. Cain and Abel didn't go well. Seth runs a course and now we're in this disaster. That's it, it's over. And he should annihilate us again, but he doesn't. Here's what he does. He says, I'm gonna protect the human race from its own self-destruction. I'm gonna pour judgment on death and sin and pour judgment on its fruit. But I'm gonna preserve this story because I made a promise to Abraham, I mean, I mean to, to Adam, and I am in Revelation, and my son is worthy, right? So this, this span is already happening, and God's like, what, what, watch this. So he goes, and he takes Noah, and he pulls Noah out. And the way we read it is he says, Noah was a righteous man that he pulled out to preserve the human race. How many of the thoughts and, and intents of mankind were evil at that time? Did it say? All. And so it's such an odd thing, isn't it? Because we would think what God meant is he was scanning the earth, scanning the earth, and everyone was a mess. And he's like, oh, oh, Noah, Noah's a good guy. And he's like, good job, I'm gonna save you. Except here's what gets fascinating. There is only one human on the planet at that time that could then be the one who would birth one, who would birth one, who would birth one, who would birth one, that would lead to a particular child. That's how it works, right? My children are the result of generations before very particular humans in that mix. They didn't just come from anyone. And God needs to get to Judah and he needs to get to David so he can get to Jesus. And he doesn't need to do it. He can do it anyway at once, but he's gonna use this. And so he selects the man that is going to be the great, 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 great grandfather of a man. And that man is Noah. And he pulls Noah out and he says, I have a promise to fulfill. I have a human race to preserve, I have a prophecy to finish, and I have a story in Revelation that's already going on that you are gonna be used to finish. And Noah and his family is preserved. Noah has three sons. Shem is one of his sons. Shem gets, has a wife and has kids. His kids have kids and his kids have kids and his kids have kids. After God has brought about the flood and pulled Noah out of that mix, preserved the human race, but more than just preserving the human race, preserved the line of Jesus through Noah. Think about the precision of how he picked Noah because Noah was the one that came from and is going to take us to the line of Jesus. And then after a bunch of kids come along, we get to a place where... Um, something fascinating happens. Listen to this. In Genesis chapter 11, it says these, verse 10, these are the generations of Shem, and Shem is one of Noah's kids. And you go through the generations and you get to verse 26 and it says, uh, when Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered three, one of them was 
Abram. Now, during the time from Shem to Terah, who would become the father of Abram, right? Guess what happens during that time? The human race in its unity decides to do what Adam and Eve did in the garden, but in a new way and say, we're going to show God that we're better than him, bigger than him, more powerful than him. We're going to build a tower all the way to heaven. We're going to rise up to that tower. We're going to conquer his kingdom and we're going to show him up. And God, in his solution to humanity's unity to show their strength to God, instead of destroying them like he did with the flood, preserving Noah, he had told Noah, that's my first round. My second round looks different. His grace toward us was this, that he took our unity and he shattered it. And he gave us languages and tribes and and we became this diverse but broken and shattered humanity. And despite the fact that we are now a complex intricacy of different tribes and languages now uh, against each other and fighting each other and all that, through all of that intricacy, somewhere between Shem and Terah, God preserves this line perfectly to get to Terah and Terah births Abram. Again, his wife births Abram. Abram is born. At the point that Abram is born... He is not a faithful Jewish man because there's no Jewish anything because the Jewish people don't exist because the 12 sons are not yet born and there are no tribes and there is no such thing as the Jewish people. They are just language groups and tribes and they are a people that are as shattered and scattered as you can imagine in terms of their clarity of God. And Abraham comes from a people and he is a worshiper of the moon. Woo! So when you think about God coming to Abraham and going, oh my gosh, I'm going to pick you. And you think of like the great Abraham, faithful Jewish man following Jesus. No, no, he's a dude worshiping the moon. And God's like, I've got a plan for you, a story for you. It's a plan and a story. I'm not making up as I go. It's one I've always had because already in what is your future and my present, my son is called the lion of the tribe of Judah and the root of David and the Messiah. And we are going to get there. And you, Abraham, are an important and integral part of that, just like Noah was and the others before you. So Abraham comes along. God says, come with me. Sarah comes with him. And God, in Genesis chapter 15, makes a promise to Abraham. He says to Abraham, I am going to, through your seed, produce one that will become a blessing to how many of the nations? all of the nations. And we see the fruit of that blessing again in the book of Revelation, where John has a vision before the throne of people worshiping. And he says, I saw a great multitude worshiping from how many nations? All of, he literally says, people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. So we know that God is telling Abraham something that we are going to see in Revelation. And he's saying, I'm going to use you to do it. Except that Abraham's old. So old, in fact, and his wife so old that they can't have kids anymore. So Sarah is super old, Abraham's super old, and they both know at this point Sarah is what we call barren, unable to have children because she is too old. So Abraham and Sarah tell God this. Look, uh, that sounds awesome, but you got the wrong couple. Because in order for us to have that promise come true, we need a seed, and I don't have any seed. I have no sons. So God says to Abraham, I am going to give you and Sarah a son. And you know what Abraham's response is to I'm going to give you and Sarah a son? You know what Sarah's response is? (laughs) They laugh. Don't hold them to that. Guess what your response would have been? 
Same exact deal, maybe in secret, but somewhere. Because you would have been like, that's not possible. A barren woman can't have a child. You think Mary is the first miracle of Christmas. Yes, unique without a doubt. Different than what's going to happen with Sarah and others. But it begins early. A barren woman who can't have a child and God miraculously opens her womb. And her and Abraham have a son. His name is Isaac. Isaac is born. And so the seed of Jesus that will lead to important names that are found now in the description of who Jesus is in Revelation are on their way. Watch, but you think it gets easy, it gets even crazier. Isaac is born and Isaac grows up and they want to find Isaac a wife. So they go find in this journey, one of Abraham's servants uh, finds this woman called Rebecca. And when he finds Rebecca, she is kind, she is faithful, she is wonderful. She is the kind of version of a person that you're like, there it is. That's the kind of person that you're like, God's going to use her. She's awesome. She's obedient. She's courageous. She's all the things that you would want to be. There she is. And so because of all of those things, the servant says, would you come with me back to Abraham? Because I'd like you to be Isaac's wife. And instead of her going, are you out of your mind? She's like, man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow what God has for me. And so off they go. And when Isaac is 40 years old, he and Rebecca end up getting married. Guess what it turns out happens with Rebecca? She turns out to be barren. Unlike Sarah, who was barren because she was, just had gotten old, Rebecca is barren. She can't have kids. So they try to have kids. They try to have kids, and they can't have kids. She is barren. And Isaac begins to pray to God, God, you, you said I made a promise to dad about a line, except that uh, <laughs> no kids are available, and I've got a barren woman. So think about this. Can Sarah have kids? No, so the line is dead. Judah doesn't show up except that God intervenes and suddenly a miracle occurs and so we continue. Can Rebecca have kids? Nope, but guess who we're playing with? A faithful and true God. And so he, in response to Isaac's prayer and as part of his precise, sovereign, beautiful, faithful and true, he opens her womb and she has twins. Jacob and Esau are born from Rebecca, who's barren and can't have kids. And Jacob and Esau grow up. That's a whole nother story for another day. <laughs> I mean, that's another one where if I were God, I'm like, that's it, you're both dead. God is faithful and true and we are idiots. That's sort of my conclusion from the whole genealogy typically. But Jacob and Esau, the story unfolds and Jacob ends up going out and finding a woman that he falls in love with. Her name is Rachel. And he goes to Rachel's dad. This is all in Genesis. And he says to Rachel's dad, man, your, your daughter is amazing and I am in love and I'd like to marry her. And Rachel's dad says to Jacob, sure, if you work for me for seven years for free, then you can marry Rachel. Man, I'm like, that's a principle we should apply. I've got, I've got four girls. That gives me like three decades worth of work for free from somebody. <laughs> Tragically, things have changed. But back then, Jacob, so in love with Rachel, says, absolutely, I'm in, I'll do it. So he jumps in and he works for seven years for Rachel's dad. And then at the end of the seven years, at the point that they're gonna get married, they're gonna consummate the marriage one night and it's dark and things are going on. I don't fully grasp it, but Rachel's dad has another daughter, Leah, and he loves Leah and he knows Leah doesn't have a real shot of getting married for whatever reason. And so he's like, okay, I'm gonna put Leah in the room with Jacob and see if I can get away with this. And he does. Jacob and Leah consummate the marriage and Jacob thinks it's Rachel. Look, let's just leave that alone, okay? But it happens. 
Jacob wakes up in the morning and realizes it's not Rachel, but it's Leah. And he is ticked, rightly so. It's in the Bible. He comes to Leah's dad and he's like, what have you done? What have you done? I worked for seven years for Rachel to be my wife, you promised, and you tricked me and gave me Leah instead. I mean, the level of deception and trickery and horror that that is, I don't know. Where do you find stuff like this? And so here's what happens. Uh, After apologizing briefly, he says, I'll tell you what, if you work for me for another seven years for free, I'll give you Rachel. (laughs) Not even kidding. And Jacob goes, no problem, I'll do it. And it's not quite that, but basically. So he works another seven years while married to Leah. And after seven years, uh, he then marries Rachel, the one that he loves. So he's now got Leah and Rachel. And you go, well, hold on a second. That's two wives. Is that even biblical? How messy is humanity? Are you starting to figure out? How messy is humanity? Are you starting to figure out? Real messy, real complicated, real insane. And at each juncture, what you would say rightly is, how is God allowing this? How is God using this? How is God being faithful in the midst of this insanity? And right when you get to that sentence, go look in the mirror and ask the same question. Because you and I are on the same boat. We're just as insane as all this. We're just better at hiding it a lot of the time. Which is the point, isn't it? You are not faithful and true, nor am I. Who is faithful and true? God and God alone, that's right. And so, listen to this. Leah's now his wife. He works another seven years. He gets Rachel as his wife. Rachel ends up being barren. What? Now, you may be thinking, I know where this story goes. God opens her womb. She has the next kid and Judah arrives. Not this time. Not this time. It turns out Leah ends up being the mom of Judah who is the Judah that the tribe of Judah is from that we now call the Messiah, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Run with me for a second on here. How does God produce Judah? By allowing an insane event to take place where a crazy dad who deceives, twists, and lies gives the wrong wife to the wrong guy or to the right guy. And God, through that event, produces Judah. And the only way Judah could have arrived was through Leah and Jacob. It's not like God went, oh, well, I've got Leah and Jacob now. Let's try to figure out Judah. If Judah was going to be the production of Rachel and of Jacob, then that's what God would have done. But it was Leah and Jacob. So God allows the worst of humanity to produce the best of his faithfulness. And Judah arrives through Leah. Now you might think, wow, so what on earth about Rachel? I mean, she's kind of like a side note. Oh, no, no, no. Because Judah's not going to make it. Judah's not even going to make it far enough to have kids and run the line. There is no lion of the tribe of Judah because there is no tribe of Judah because all the boys that belong to Jacob end up starving to death in a famine and dying. The entire story of Israel ends here. But for one thing, a boy is born to Rachel because God opens her womb miraculously. In fact, two boys are born, but the first, his name is Joseph. Oh, that name sounds familiar. Joseph is not in the line of Jesus. Joseph is given to preserve the line of Jesus because Joseph becomes Jacob's favorite Because Joseph is born from Rachel, who's Jacob's favorite, rightly so, because Leah was tricked. (laughs) He was tricked, right? And that creates a lot of mess. And the boys, the other boys feel it. And so guess what they do with Joseph? 
They sell them into slavery. Good plan. They're going to kill him, but they're like, even better, we can make some money. They sell him into slavery, and he gets whisked off to Egypt. Slave. And his story unfolds in the book of Genesis, and before you know it, Joseph becomes the second in command of all of Egypt under Pharaoh and Pharaoh alone. And a famine arrives in the land that Joseph, by God's power, got Pharaoh ready to be able to preserve nations during a famine. And one of the groups of people that end up coming to Egypt because Joseph ended up there and told Pharaoh what to do about a future famine that Pharaoh didn't know about show up are the brothers who would become the 12 tribes, who would become Israel, who would become the line that we would say of our Savior, he is the lion of the tribe of Judah, and who would become the line to David so he could be the root of David and would fulfill the prophecies and promises of God that God had set in place. God takes Leah, and he takes Rachel, and he takes Jacob, and all the mess around that, and he weaves that together to end up with Judah and Joseph, Joseph preserving Judah, and Judah making it to become one of the 12 tribes so that we can end up in Revelation chapter 19 with a glorious one on a white horse conquering sin and death, who in chapter 5 was worthy of opening the scroll because he is the lion of the tribe of Judah, and of the root of David. David, God fulfilling his prophecies and his promises. We're just in Genesis, folks. We haven't even gone down the rest of the line. That's for next week and the week after. And the stories just get better and better, worse and worse, crazier and crazier. And one story remains the entire time. The entire time. God was, God is. God will be faithful and true. And so Advent becomes what Advent should be. We don't look back at the stories of old simply for the sake of looking back at the stories of old. We look back at the stories of old to see God's faithfulness and how true he is so that in our present, when it feels like he is neither faithful nor true, we can say, that's not true because I have all of the historical stories to sit with. He is faithful and true. Do you think those folks thought he was faithful and true at some of the junctures we just talked about? No! Abraham and Sarah laughed. Rebecca was barren. Rachel was tricked. Jacob was insane. I mean, you know how many decades went by that those folks were like, where are you? And yet was he always there, always faithful, always true, always precise, always preserving, always protecting, always finishing, always fulfilling, always. So we look back so that we can stand presently secure, not in our circumstances, but in the truth of God's faithfulness and in the truth of God being true. And we look forward to revelation to say when he said he's going to return, is he going to return? Yes. yes, he is. How faithful is he going to be to that? Is he going to work every ounce of precision throughout the furthering of human history to bring about his second advent at exactly the right moment so that that which is already in revelation will become utterly confirmed and true because it already is? Is he that faithful and is he that true? Yes, he is. As we further our way through the rest of the unfolding line of Jesus, as you have already begun, I'm sure, to perceive, two things will become evident, I think, because they have for me. One, God is faithful and true how much of the time? Always. Always. Two, 
you and I, whatever we bring to the table, he will use it as he sees fit in a beautiful way. Bring your best, he'll use it. Bring your worst, he'll use it. Bring your faithfulness, he'll use it. Bring your unfaithfulness, he'll use it. Show up, he'll use it. Don't show up, he'll use it. God is going to do his work in and through you because he is good and faithful and true, not because you are. You will find yourself in this line somewhere. You will find your best in here. You will find your worst in here. You will see yourself in this genealogy and you will know that you are no better nor are you any worse than anyone in this genealogy. And yet God, with absolute, total faithfulness and precision, brought about exactly what he needed to bring about for our Savior to show up, to live, to die, to rise from the dead, having his robe dipped in blood, becoming the Lamb of God, even though he is the conquering king, the lion of the tribe of Judah, in the line of King David himself. The king of kings is Jesus. The Lord of lords is Jesus. The conqueror, the worthy one, the savior. God is faithful and true. Merry Christmas. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your extraordinary love for us and the amazing realities that you have unfolded in the totality of our human story. Thanks that Matthew bothered to put the genealogy in there. Thanks that Luke bothered to put the genealogy in there. Thank you that Genesis bothered to put the genealogies in there. Thank you that Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy are full of all sorts of different points of genealogy. God, what would seemingly be useless information to us about the realities of who's who turns out to be the extraordinary display of your precision, protection, preservation, faithfulness, and truth toward us throughout human history to accomplish your purposes for your glory and for our good. And this Christmas, as we walk into the Advent, we come to celebrate your faithfulness and your goodness and your truth. In stories past, we come to celebrate your faithfulness, your, your, your glory, your goodness, and your truth in the Christmas story and the events that take place there. We come to celebrate it in our present. We celebrate it in our future as we look forward. And so we sit at this fireplace this Christmas, story after story that we will encounter for the weeks to come. And as we sit and listen to the stories of old, we are moved by those stories, remembering your faithfulness and your truth so that we might anticipate your faithfulness and truth in our stories yet to come those in our lifetime and those in our long future standing with all those tribes, tongues, and nations, worshiping you in the great multitude before your throne as we too one day will stand and see the conquering king on the white horse whose robe is dipped in blood to save us and who's worthy of being righteous judge who will conquer sin and death and set us free forever as he already has. You, King of kings, Lord of lords, are faithful and true. To you be all glory and honor and praise forever and ever. Amen.